Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is November 29th, 2015, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Mill. The title of today's podcast is Hip to Be Blocked, Regional Nerve Blocks for Hip and Femoral Neck Fractures. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Brandon Ritzy, an emergency medicine resident from the University of Ottawa. Welcome to the SGEM, Brandon. Hey there, Ken. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Um, I understand you're in the last year of training, uh, five out of five years. Are you excited to be almost finished? I'm so tired of studying right now, Ken. I cannot wait to be finished. <laughs> well, you know what? Life gets even busier after residency. Oh, don't say that. I don't want to hear that. Uh, what, what are your plans for the future when you are done? Uh, well, I'm going to be working in Ottawa. Uh, I'll be working at the Ottawa Hospital and in, involved in our ultrasound fellowship program. Well, it is a hotbed of research out there in Ottawa with Jeff Perry and Ian Steele. You're joining an amazing group of Canadian researchers. Speaking of Canada, this is the first Canadian edition of the SJAM Hop. Chris Carpenter from St. Louis has been co-hosting for most of the Hot Off the Press articles from Academic Emergency Medicine. That's great, Ken. Hot Off the Press merges the traditional publication of journal articles with the rapid dissemination and knowledge translation of social media. This allows the knowledge translation window to be cut down to less than one month. Well, I have to tell you, Brandon, it has been a huge success. And now we're going to start blogging and podcasting articles freshly published from the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. Well, I think that's great. There's some amazing Canadian content published in CGEM, and I think it's awesome to highlight some of the amazing work going on in this country. Yeah, and I needed to find another great co-host for the Canadian edition, and he just happens to be called Chris. So Dr. Chris Bond is an emergency physician out west in Calgary, the electrical cardioversion capital of Canada, apparently. And Chris has been on the SGM before in episode number 86, Achy Breaky Heart, which reviewed the use of colchicine for acute pericarditis. He has a great blog called Sock Mob, and that stands for Standing on the Corner, Minding My Own Business, the number one risk factor for getting injured on a Friday night. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thanks, Ken. I'm super psyched and ready to go. Well, you have been practicing for this because you've taken over recording CapeCast. Yeah, that's right. CapeCast is the official podcast of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, and season one was done last year by Ken Milne himself. It highlights education innovations being developed at emergency medicine programs across Canada. So far this season, we've learned about UBC's Medical Education for Residents in Training program and the Staff Simulation program in Calgary. You can check them all out at www.cape.ca. But enough about the CapeCast. Let's get hopping. Yeah, let's get back to the hop and let's remind everybody about the whole SGEM hop process. Sure. So first, we select a pre-published article from the CGM publication pipeline and do a structured critical review of the article. And then next, we interview the author, and in this case, we've got Brandon, about the strengths and weaknesses of the paper. We then produce a blog and podcast that is released shortly after the paper is published. And then the SGMers, they get to jump in and have their voice heard by giving immediate feedback and comments. Finally, a summary article is then published in a subsequent edition of CGM. All right, so everybody's up to date on the SGM hop process. Let's kickstart this edition with a case, Chris. All right, Ken. So a 75-year-old woman has a ground-level fall in her apartment. She is brought to the emergency department with an isolated hip injury. She has a past medical history of high blood pressure and GERD. 
Her only complaint is hip pain. On exam, her vital signs are normal. The only abnormality found is a shortened and externally rotated left leg. An x-ray demonstrates a femoral neck fracture. The nurse wants to know what you want to give her for pain. Yeah, pain. Oligoanalgesia is a well-recognized problem in the emergency department, and it can be defined as inadequate pain control. And there are various groups at risk for oligoanalgesia, and the elderly is one of these groups. Hip fractures are common in the elderly population. They're often really painful and are a significant cause of morbidity and mortality. Pain management can be challenging in these cases, particularly because of increased complications of opiate medications in this population. So there's three different types of regional nerve blocks that have been tried to address the pain of these kinds of fractures. The first is the traditional femoral nerve block. So this involves injecting some local anesthetic directly around the femoral nerve and in the neurovascular bundle of the groin. The second technique is the three-in-one femoral nerve block. In this technique, the operator places a little bit of pressure distal to the needle while doing a traditional femoral nerve block. And this is supposed to theoretically allow the anesthetic to track superiorly and also anesthetize the obturator and lateral femoral cutaneous nerves. The third nerve block available is the fasciolyaca compartment block. So the fasciolyaca block indirectly anesthetizes the same three nerves as the three-in-one nerve block by injecting a larger volume of a dilute anesthetic lateral to the nerve within the fasciolyaca compartment. So Chris, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? We're going to try and answer if regional nerve blocks effectively reduce pain, decrease opiate use, and if they're safe compared to standard pain management in patients with hip or femoral neck fractures. So Brandon, what's the reference? What's the paper you just published in CGEM? So the paper we published is by Ritzy and all. Uh, it's Regional Nerve Blocks for Hip and Femoral Neck Fractures in the Emergency Department, a systematic review. And Chris, what was the population that Brandon had? So they looked at adults over 16 years old with femoral neck or hip fracture. And what were the interventions in the studies? The interventions were femoral nerve block, or the three-in-one femoral nerve block, or the fascia iliaca compartment block. And what did they compare it to? They compared it to standard pain management with opiates, acetaminophen, or NSAIDs. And what were the primary and secondary outcomes, Chris? The primary outcome was reduction in visual analog scale pain scores. The secondary outcomes were parenteral opioid use and complication rates. And so, Brandon, we don't want to bury the lead. What were your conclusions? So, our conclusions in this study were that regional nerve blocks for hip and femoral neck fractures have a benefit in reducing pain and decreasing the need for IV opiates in this elderly, fragile population. So, we concluded that the use of these blocks can be recommended, but we need further high-quality randomized controlled trials. So, let's go through the quality checklist, Chris. For therapeutic systematic reviews, we have seven questions. The first question, Chris, is the clinical question sensible and answerable? Yes, it is. Was the search strategy for studies detailed and exhaustive? Yes, it was. How about the primary studies? Were they of high methodological quality? Unfortunately, they were not. The assessment of the studies, were they reproducible? Yes, they were. Do you think the outcomes were clinically relevant? Yes, they were. Question six, was there low statistical heterogeneity for the primary outcomes? No, there was not. And the final question, the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Yes, it was. All right, let's go through those results then. When they did their search, they found nine articles to include in this systematic review. 
for a total of 547 patients. The data couldn't be combined into a meta-analysis. Chris, what was the primary outcome? In eight of the nine studies, they concluded that regional nerve blocks were equal or superior in reducing pain scores compared to standard therapy. And for the secondary outcomes, five of the six studies demonstrated significant reduction in parental opioid use. There were no life-threatening complications, but there were some increases in minor complications. And this is where we get to talk nerdy. This was a well-done systematic review, Brandon, looking at an important topic. We want to bring you back in to discuss and probe your paper for both the strengths and the weaknesses. Yeah, so Brandon, your search strategy, you searched a number of databases, including Medline, Embase, Sinal, and Cochrane Central Register of Controlled Trials. You also searched the references of the articles you selected. There were no language restrictions. Did you find any publications other than English? And if you had, how are you going to handle the translation aspects? So that's a good question. Uh, we actually did have a number of publications in languages other than English. Uh, we had one article in French and one in Swedish. Uh, and this, that's probably because a lot of the great research in this area is actually done in Europe and not published in traditional English journals. Um, so we actually had all of these articles translated by a translation service that we could include them in our review. Well, Brandon, we're asking this because awareness is one of the barriers to knowledge translation. It was the first leak in the Pathman leaky pipe model. And it's one of the reasons the SGEM has now gone global, and it's being translated and podcasted in five other languages, including Spanish, Portuguese, French, German, and Italian. That's fantastic, Ken. I love that this is in six languages now. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, Brandon, the second question is about inter-observer reliability. One of the things you did really well in this study was have more than one abstractor. You had two people independently screen the titles and abstracts for inclusion in the full text review. You assess the inter-observer kappa. The first phase of screening the titles and abstracts got a kappa of 0.61. The kappa increased to 0.79 when you were deciding on what articles to include after reviewing the full text. Yeah, and not all systematic reviews have such good abstract methods, and it was one of the strengths I noted in your paper. Uh, thanks, Ken. So if this is one of the things that's part of the PRISMA guidelines for the reporting of systematic reviews. Uh, it's, it's a very important thing in just making sure the quality of the selection process is high and that there's a low risk of missing potentially important articles that are going to be included in a systematic review. Well, if people want to know more about Kappa and inter-rater reliability, I'll put a couple of links in the show notes. Brandon, do you remember where most of the disagreements came from in the first or second step of the screening? Well, so in the first step of the screening, we just looked at the titles and the abstracts of the articles. So as you can imagine, there's, it's kind of difficult to get a lot of information about some of the articles from this. And so that's where we had really the most disagreements. And so in order to make sure we didn't miss any articles, we just included any articles where there was any disagreement at all into the second step of the screening to make sure that we could fully go through those articles and decide whether they should be included or not. In the second step of the screening, uh, we had much fewer differences and disagreements. In that part, we was able to sort of negotiate uh, settlement in most cases easily. So we did have a third person available for any tiebreakers, but uh, we didn't have to use him very often. The main places where we had some disagreements where we needed a tiebreaker was in our risk of bias assessment, because it's a little bit more subjective. Well, that leads us into question three about the risk of bias. Uh, you assessed bias for the included randomized trials. What, what tool did you use to do that? So we chose to use the Cochrane collaboration tool for assessing risk of bias in randomized trials. 
Right. I noticed only one of the nine studies had an overall low risk of bias. That was the one by Baudouin et al. The other eight had moderate to high risk of bias. Where would you say most of the bias came from in these studies? Most of the bias came in two different domains. The first where the, we had the largest risk of bias was in the lack of double blinding. So six of the nine studies had no attempt at, at blinding. And you can imagine that that's going to be a bit of a, a bit pretty big problem when you have a study where you're actually performing an intervention on a patient because it's very difficult to blind that patient when you're actually placing a needle in their, under their skin. The other area where we had a significant risk of bias was in some of the outcome assessment, which is that it wasn't clear who was assessing the outcome, when or how. And it would have been possible to blind perhaps a research assistant uh, when asking the patients, how is your pain, so that at least the person assessing their pain is not biased by knowing which group the patient was allocated to. What about the four studies that included patients who were later unaccounted for in the final results? So that's an, also a good question. In four of the studies, there was patients who were enrolled who then weren't included in any of the tables discussing the results or pain, final pain scores. And the studies, unfortunately, didn't really say what happened to those patients and why they weren't accounted for. So it's, it wasn't a large number of patients, but it is a methodological weakness in these papers. And there was also a significant variability in the reporting of secondary outcomes, Brandon, in particular the underreporting of harm. Yeah, so only really one study, the study by Bodoin and all, really did a detailed description of who was looking for possible complications from these blocks, when and how they looked for them. Most of the papers just kind of willy-nilly would say, well, this many patients got confused, this many patients had pneumonia, and so on. So it was difficult to find out what the real risks of harms of these blocks may have been from, the, from most of these articles. Well, I have to say I wasn't surprised because adverse events are often underreported in medical trials. And if you look at sample size calculations for studies, they're usually done for efficacy, not for the frequency and severity of the adverse events. And this, of course, makes it harder to do a proper potential risk versus potential benefit evaluation. The fourth question is about the study size. Most of these were fairly small studies, being around 50 patients total. The largest study only had 154 patients, and the combined total of all nine studies was 547. We have a few questions about these individual studies. So what was the most common block done? So as you can see in table one from the study, uh, the most common form of block that we did, that any of the authors did, was the three-in-one femoral nerve block. And what anesthetic did they use and how much did they inject? So the different studies use slightly different anesthetics and different volumes, but it's the most common one was approximately about 25 cc's of bupivacaine, 0.5%. Uh, and who were doing the injections? So in five of the nine studies, it was an emergency resident or attending doing the injection. And were they trained on how to do this, or did they give us details? Most of them gave some details on how they trained them. On average, they didn't, none of the articles had a huge amount of experience in doing these blocks. The average was probably about a one-hour training session where they'd train the people performing the blocks for the research study, and then they would let them go and practice. And were they using ultrasound? Well, this was a problem we were hoping that we would find. We were hoping we would find lots of articles that used ultrasound. Unfortunately, most of these articles were published before 2005, where a lot of where ultrasound wasn't really all that common in emergency departments. So only one article actually used ultrasound. The rest used either landmark techniques or nerve stimulators. All right, the fifth and final question: Explain why you could not perform a meta-analysis and you only did a systematic review. 
when we set out, we were hoping we might be able to find a way to perform a meta-analysis. However, we found the variability in, in these studies and the heterogeneity and how they actually presented their results made it impossible. A lot of them used different time points, used different pain scales, and we found that it just wasn't possible to combine the data in any kind of way. Yeah, I think that's really great. I mean, I, a lot of the time, it seems that they just kind of jam the meta-analysis onto the systematic review, and I really respect the fact that you guys didn't try and stuff it in there, if you know what I mean. Unfortunately, it makes things a little bit more messy in reporting. It's nice when you can have one figure that has just a, you know, a little force plot showing a definite result on one side or the other towards benefit or harm. But we just found we couldn't do that with the data we had. So Chris, can you comment on Brandon's conclusion and compare them to our conclusions? I would say in general, we agree with the author's conclusions. So here's the SGEM bottom line. Well, the evidence comes from small studies with a moderate to high risk of bias. Femoral nerve blocks appear to be an effective alternative to standard treatment of pain associated with femoral neck or hip fractures in the emergency department. But we're going to need more high quality studies to comment strongly about safety. So it's funny you mentioned that, Ken. There's actually going to be a, exactly what we're hoping for, a high quality randomized controlled trial based out of Toronto, so Canadian content. Jock Lee is going to be the lead investigator on it, and it's going to be a six-center, multi-center RCT looking at both the fascia iliac block and the femoral nerve block, specifically on an outcome of delirium, as well as pain control in these patients, which hopefully will be the highest quality study done to date looking at this important question. Well, maybe we can get those researchers onto the SGEM as soon as they publish for another hot off the press article. But let's give a case resolution, Chris, because we want to wrap this up. Right. So you tell the nurse to start an IV and you are going to talk to the patient about her pain control options. These will include IV opiates and or a regional nerve block. And so how are you going to take this information, Chris, and clinically apply it? I'd say I'm going to offer regional nerve blocks to patients who present with hip or femoral neck fractures. So here's what I might tell a patient. You've broken your hip. This is a very painful injury. We can give you pain medicine like morphine. These drugs work very well for pain, but can you make you sick to your stomach, hallucinate, and drop your blood pressure? Another option is we could inject some freezing into the hip that blocks the nerve. This usually works very well with few complications. It often means you do not need as much pain medicine. Would you like me to do this type of nerve block? I think I'd like that type of nerve block, Ken. If you're looking for more foam resources on hip fractures and nerve blocks, you can check out Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. They've got a great page on hip fractures in older adults, an important source of morbidity. All right. Well, that brings us to the Keener contest. And last week's winner was Staz Hazinski. And I'm sorry if I said your name wrong, Staz, but you're from George Washington University. And I'm going to be visiting George Washington University EM program very soon. But what is the Keener contest this week? All right. So I wanted to ask the listeners, why is it harder to get an effective nerve block for more proximal hip fracture than for more distal femur fracture. If you know the answer to this hip question, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com. The first correct answer will win a cool skeptical prize. Chris, I want to thank you for helping us launch the first Canadian sgem hot off the press. Thanks so much, Ken. It's been a great time.
So SGM listeners, we really want to hear from you guys. So we want you to give us your feedback on the blog, on Twitter, on Facebook, however you can get it to us. We want to hear it. Yeah, that's a really important component of the SGM hop process. So please give us your feedback in real time and show how the social media can cut that knowledge translation window from over 10 years to less than one month. And thanks to you, Brandon, for allowing us to do a critical appraisal of your systematic review. Thanks a lot, guys. It's been a pleasure. Well, the real pleasure for the guest skeptic is to give the SGM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. <laughs>